This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to I'm a Writer, but my guest today is Rachel Cantor. Rachel Cantor is the author of the novels A Highly Unlikely Scenario and Good on Paper. Her short stories have appeared in the Paris Review, One Story, Ninth Letter, and the Kenyon Review, among other publications. She was raised in Roman, Connecticut, and currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. Her new novel is Half-Life of a Stolen Sister, a novel of the Brontes, and it is incredible welcome rachel (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you so much i'm so such a lively introduction i'm very grateful (laughs) it came from the depths of my soul Um, Uh, can you please read just a little bit of it for our listeners yeah certainly so i'll read like a page or two from the very very beginning so i don't have to explain much but Perfect. I will say, of course, this is a novel about the Brontes that brings the Brontes to a time and place much like our own, although you may not be able to tell that from the first two pages. Um, in this very, very first piece or story, it's called Little Mother, in which a mother dies. I get straight to the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a piece that's told from the point of view of the oldest of the six Bronte children, whose name is Maria, and it was known as Little Mother. And uh, again, there are six children at that point. And uh, Lottie, who's actually Charlotte, who's known as Lottie in my book, not in real life, but in my book. So Lottie's about five years old and uh, Branwell would be four, um, Emily three, you know, and maybe two or maybe she's maybe a one and a half. That's just to give you some framework. Um, And the mother's dying. So I'll just read the very first pages. Mama teaches the difference between us. The pillows are all behind her, around her, left to right. Branny, the closest because he's the only boy. Jot Lottie, jostling with Bran, who's younger by a year, but bigger. M on the end, sucking her thumb. On the right, standing, Liza, holding a broom. And me, holding Annie, who sleeps with a sucker. Annie, Mama says, you will always be the baby. No matter what you do, your family will love and underestimate you. Annie opens her eyes and drops her sucker. Emily, you will always care more for places than people. You will go away, but you will always come back. Em puts a blanket over her head. 
Branwell, you will try with your big heart to please, but until you learn self-control, you will only disappoint. Brainy whoops and throws a toy truck to the air. Charlotte, you care most for what you do not have. Learn to care for what you have and you will be happy. But, Lottie says, she wants so much to understand. Elizabeth, your needs are simple. You will be forgotten, but you do not mind. Liza holds her broom to her chest. Maria, are you there? Come closer, Maria. I lay Annie onto the bed. She crawls to Emily under the blanket. I do not need to tell you who you are. You already know. You are the little mother, the one who fills the spaces. I know this. I help Mama to lift a hand to my young face. Because Mama is poorly, she no longer makes sock dolls, cooks cabbage, buttons dresses, shouts, shouts to Branny to stop pinching, counts the teeth Liza has lost, tugs at her pinafore, chews her nails, hums music by the dishes, explains puppets, says scoot, makes faces at Annie, makes Lottie's little braids, makes anyone guess what's for dinner, says poems at the fire, calms Papa a hand in his hair. Lottie shakes the door and shouts. She draws pictures of happy mama, happy Lottie in crayons, blue and red. She slides them under the door. She tries to slide a cookie, a sock doll. I'm eight, so I'm the oldest. I yank Lottie away, but Lottie is strong, strong with fear. She shouts, Mama needs a doll for me. She shouts, no, Maria, no. Children, please. Lottie wails by the water pot, placed there before Mama's room for the event of fire. Branny throws soldiers. Emmy won't nap. Annie crawls too near the stove. Liza scorches the sheets. Papa looks horrified at all of it. He cannot read the paper for all the noise. I read to him. He shuts his eyes, his fingers covering his face. Auntie keeps saying, this isn't how we do things. Thank you so much. I read those first pages um, when my oldest, who's also very curious about everything I'm reading. And so he was kind of asking me as I'm trying to read the pages what uh -huh. it was about. And I just had to hold his hand. I just... It's wrenching what's oh. happening. And um, I, you know, I was in from, from the very beginning. Um, you wow. do such an amazing job inhabiting this mind space of the siblings because it's very childlike mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's very important that they maintain that childlike sense of the world because it feeds into their creativity, but it also very much stymies them. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to know like how you decided on that mind space, how you got into that mind space, how you, how you wrote the way that you wrote. <laughs> oh, it's such a, it's such a big question. Um, I think, I think people, people definitely are, res definitely respond strongly to the, these, most of these early sections and, and pieces, which are about the children. I guess that means I was kind of successful in, in inhabiting their childlike world. They're, they're, their world was such a world of the imagination and it's so incredibly important, not just for their books that would come, but also for their relationships because it bound them together. Mm -hmm. So as, as many people know, uh, the, you know, as, as young people, the, the four surviving Bronte children, which would be again, you know, Anne, Emily, Branwell, and Charlotte shared a creative life. They, 
They told stories together. They created entire imaginary realms together. They wrote stories, which they read to each other, or they collaborated on, they illustrated. It was, it was an entire universe that they inhabited. And I think I found that kind of thrilling to be a part of. I, I, in, in, in doing one of my events, um, I did an event with, with Robin Black, who's an amazing author and a very, very insightful person and writer. And, and she, she asked me, did, did you want to be in the room with those children? And, and she sensed that in the writing. Mm-hmm. I thought that was amazing because I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I did feel like I was in that room and I wanted to be in the room of that create where all that creative, that creative maelstrom was happening. Um, and, and, and I love that idea. I think, you know, most of us as writers, as adults, or even maybe if we were creative kids, I don't know, it, it's an internal and solitary process. And the idea of them sharing this creative life is more than I could even imagine for myself. And I think, yes, I did enjoy being in the room with them. And, and I think that that joy in their creativity, even though, as you said, it, it, it might've created problems with them so-called adjusting to real life later on. It was, it was, it was very powerful for me. And, and I hope, I hope also for the reader. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question. Maybe I answered part of your question. No, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, they, um, they did the work that writers are always being told to do, which is like, (laughs) you know, it's not just sitting down to write. It's, it's all, it's like opening your mind and opening your soul up to these moments of inspiration and like running with it. And that was just natural for them. And, um, you know, I, I would actually argue that they maintain that childlike sense all the way through to their deaths, um, mm. except with the exception of Lottie, who grows up suddenly after all of her siblings have died and then she marries mm. and she conceives. But, um, mm. you know, I, I think about how they collaborated so well. And that's not to say that they didn't fight and they didn't argue yeah. and they, you know, because they did. They really pushed each other's yeah. buttons constantly as siblings yes. do. But mm-hmm. I, it makes me think of that time when she's having... Um, I don't remember which book that Charlotte was writing and she gets edits back and she just writes back and was like, I'm too tired to do those. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was, it was Jane Eyre. It was, well, it was in my book. It's, it's called, uh, it's called plain Jane, but yeah, yeah. She, she, and this is true. She was kind oh of like, you know, I, I just, well, it's totally true. She was like, um, you know, I just, I, I'm really, I, I'm not in the flush of, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to say her words exactly. It's been, you know, 10 or more years since I read them, but um, I'm, I'm just, I, I can't, I can't re-enter that, that, that frame of mind. And, and I am sort of busy. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to leave the opening as it, as it was. She was somebody who had a very complete vision of what she wanted. I mean, she, she agonized as we all do, but you know, when it was done, she was, she was happy with it. <laughs> she was not, yeah, even I, though it was her first published book and her, the first book she went out with was so published. Right. Right. So exactly. That confidence. Yeah. I so admire that because I think, especially for women and especially in yeah. the time or the world that the Brontes lived in, yeah, you can't, you don't have a say. And I feel like even now, like as a woman, sometimes I'm like, oh, oh, you know, I, I, I don't, ha- I shouldn't take ownership of what I've, even though the, you know, the work is there and the, yes. and the experience is there and the years is there, I still feel a little bit slapped, you know, sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, and I must please because I'm a, I'm a female. I must please exactly. the people who, <laughs> who yes. are in power or whatever. 
Yeah, but she didn't, you know, in that moment, she was like, eh, I'm good. This is good. This is fine. <laughs> I love that. I totally love that. She should be an inspiration to all of us, right? She really should. I, you know, I wonder if, because then her editor was like, okay, all right, I <laughs> guess that's that, you know, like, <laughs> like we should all try it. Like, um, I see what you're saying, but no, I like it like this. She, she was kind of female about it. She kind of said, you know, I'll, I'll take it under consideration. So next time my books won't have all the various faults that you seem to have found in this one. I'll, you know, I'll, 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 I'll remember what you said and try to be, do better next time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, mm-hmm, yep. And then just uh, file away. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, I very purposely didn't let myself, cause I, I have read Jane Eyre and that's it. I've never read Wuthering Heights. I've didn't even know Anne Bronte had written books. Please forgive me that I sound so <laughs> ignorant right now. But um, I, and so when I, when I set out to read this book, I very purposely yeah. did not let myself look mm-hmm. them up because I wanted to, mm-hmm. I want their, I wanted their lives to unfold as you were telling it. Um, okay. And so I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe, you know, and you take liberties obviously, but, but their lives were so tragic and yes. so hard. And yeah. I, and, and, fascinating and mm-hmm. um I, I guess I just want to hear like what for you made you think like I must write I must mm. write their lives mm-hmm. well you know I, I I read Jane Eyre as a child and I loved it. it was my favorite book it still is my favorite book but I had no interest in writing about them until I was well into midlife and I was in a situation I was overseas and I'd run out of books I did not yet then yet have an e-reader. This is a long time ago. <laughs> and I went to a you know bookstore and it was a Danish bookstore, did not have very many books in English. And I, I picked up The Let, which I had never read. I think at that point I'd only ever read Jane Eyre. That was it. You know, I hadn't even read Wuthering Heights, which many people, at least in my generation, read it and they were young. Um, I don't know if people read it anymore, but I picked up The Let and I uh, picked it up because a friend of mine in college who was very, very smart. And an English major type had described it as her favorite book. And I thought, well, okay, it's, it's time for me to read Follette. Why not? Yeah. And and the book itself was very moving. It's a very vulnerable, very oh, difficult, challenging book emotionally, I think. Um, but even before I read the book, I read the preface to the book, which gave a sort of biographical summary of the family and of Charlotte in particular. And it was there that I learned the shocking story of her life you know which was again she lost her mother at age five her two older beloved sisters who had been as mothers to her after her mother died just a few years later and then Mm -hmm. after growing up with her three brothers remaining brothers and sisters she lost them in this awful nine-month period one two three you know Mm -hmm. branwell emily and nine months three of them died and 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 charlotte found herself in her early 30s Uh, alone. I mean, she had her father, but she lived with her father still, but it it was a kind of a problematic relationship, to say the least. And um, she was alone. And she was, by the definition of the time, she was not marriageable. She was not conventionally attractive. uh, And she was prickly. She had a lot of, you know, personality um, quirks that might have made her unattractive to people, socially uncomfortable and so on, to, to, men she had some friends but they're mostly long distance friends she was alone and that the the radical quality of that aloneness just struck me in a in a really deep way and and i and yet she continued to write books and yet as i you know as i've mentioned you've referred to she did in her last 
you know, last year to find a partner and mm-hmm. actually get pregnant. And, and in a way, you know, you know, we all have to decide how we interpret that, but I interpreted that in, in a really positive way. I think she, she experienced love in, in, in her last year or two. And so how did she get from that point where mm-hmm. she was so radically alone to continuing to write, to fi- being open to love, to being open to new experiences and so on. How did she survive it? I don't know how I could survive it. And, and, and you know, I didn't share a, a, a you know, a, a little house with all my siblings as we, as we grew up right. together, you know, into, into adulthood. Um, uh, so that experience, it really moved me. And, and, and that was what made me want to write their story and I you know again I was also I read in that little preface about their shared creative life when they were young and and that was also you know very as I said before kind of interesting and and exciting to me and 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 it wasn't just a tragic story it was a story that had all dimensions to it you know these were very witty people they were very funny people and uh, they had lots of joys in addition to these awful tragedies and of course you know they were writers so yeah, you know, it's it's an incredibly tragic, sad book. Or mm-hmm. I'm, you know, because you're you're writing about incredibly sad and tragic things that happened, but it is so fun to read and it is um so beautiful and there's moments of like real hilarity. And mm. I I wanted to ask like it seems mm. like you had fun writing it. Mm. Is that a, is that incorrect? <laughs> oh, no, it's totally correct. I mean, to step back a second there there were sections that were extremely difficult and not fun to write and Mm -hmm. and those were the sections of course when the 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 siblings get sick and they die that was Mm -hmm. really really hard to do and I'm not just saying that it actually was literally hard to do how do I how do I convey this you know I I thank god you know I've not experienced that level of loss and so it really there was a kind of ventriloquism going on I, I, I had to kind of figure out how she might have experienced those terrible events and it was it was hard and I cry still when I read these sections I can't read them without getting sad um but there was also a, a tremendous freedom that I allowed myself when I came up with the form of the book which you really haven't haven't described yet which is that um not only is is the book set in a kind of current mid-sized North American city um but the story is told from a lots lots of different points of view using a variety of forms. So anything from the more conventional kind of here's a letter, you know, a epistolary story to a diary story to a kind of more conventional tale, all the way to a you know a Match.com profile or a biographer's you know chapter or a home movie. Um, lots and lots of different formats uh, forms, and again all the different the points of view of members of the family, but also some external points of view, kind of give this kaleidoscopic look at this family, you know, in this current setting. So I make a lot of of surprising choices, I guess, you know, in, in setting in setting up the book. But in writing it then, I had a tremendous amount of freedom, at least formally. Mm-hmm. I didn't allow myself a lot of freedom when it came to the historical record. I was I tried very hard to be respectful of the historical record. And by that, I mean the the contours of their lives, the major events, the major relationships, the major turning points, the the, the flaws in the characters. I tried very hard 
to write the characters as I understood them from the historical record and not to kind of create my own. And yet it's by necessarily these are these are these are in, interpretations. I can't I can't help but be that. But I tried hard to stay close to the record. But the forms that I gave myself allowed and the the, the need to then find, you know, equivalence in the current day to events that couldn't translate exactly, you know, mm -hmm. kids, kids who there, there, there is no school for the daughters of indigent clergy now that were the <laughs> children might experience neglect <laughs> unto death right now. But, you know, children can and do die in foster care. And there is a suggestion that that's what happened to the two older kids that they were in something resembling it's, it's, you know, the story is not, doesn't say that outright, but I think if you read the story carefully, that, that might be the conclusion you come to. And that's sort of how I came up with equivalence to to tell a historical truth, but in in a contemporary setting that would make sense. So, you know, there's there's not much call for teachers who have not, you know, finished elementary school, much less gone to college. Um, so, you know, Charlotte does not get a job teaching; she gets a job without her formal education as a receptionist, and that struck me as true. And yet, there was plenty of opportunity for her to be demeaned in that position as she mm -hmm. was as a teacher or as a nanny. So I try to find historical equivalents. But, there, you know, in doing that, there was a lot of freedom and, and a lot of creativity. And and, and I, it sounds odd to say this, but I really felt like I grabbed creative energy from their story, you know, from their enormous creativity. It kind of, I don't know, it's inspired me to, to be creative in kind of similarly free ways. And I, I don't know if that if it's that sounds convincing, but that's that's my experience of it. No, it and absolutely I think I does. Think like the joy I, of that comes through. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, I can see feeling like they're right there, like with you as you're mm. um describing their lives. I mean, I I like there's the there's two things that you mentioned in what you just said that that I, I do really want to talk about. And one is the form. Yeah. Um, and the choices you made there. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other that I'm really interested in as well is why you decided to add modernity to this story. Like why, mm -hmm. you know, suddenly there's emails. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it was, it was so deft, you know, like it was so natural, you <laughs> know, like as it unfolded, like, I think my first clue, someone said something about a phone, like, oh, he doesn't have a phone. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like it was such a, joy and a delight and I, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about your choice to yeah, yeah. make it more modern I on some level I would like to say that I set out having made a lot of choices to do certain things because that might make me sound really smart and intentional <laughs> in fact what I did was well I, I had intended to write something completely different I had intended to write something that was kind of realistic that was set in a historical setting even though I'm not a realistic writer, even though I'm not a writer of historical, I love historical fiction, but I'm not a writer of historical fiction. And I mean that kind of essentially, I mean, not just that I haven't done it, I have done something like that, but it's just not who I am. But I didn't, I didn't remember that somehow. And I had this idea that I might become that sort of writer. And I think sometimes we have to tell ourselves stories so that we can get started with something. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
it's like, you know, when I decided to become a freelancer, I was like, oh, I've got, or just, I'm sorry, when I decided to be, to spend a year at the, at the sea to become a writer in my, in my thirties, I was like, oh, I've got plenty of money for this. And you no, know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have enough money to take a year off, but I kind of had to, I had to tell myself I did. And then I came up with a, a solution for how I might continue writing. But in this case, I thought I was going to write something realistic. It was going to be four kind of novellas, maybe long short stories, each from the point of view of one of the surviving adult siblings that takes on a moment in their collective history. And that was very obviously very much not what I ended up doing. I had this kind of incredible, great good fortune of, of having two residencies back to back where I had three months in which to figure out what this book was going to be and start writing it. And um, it was, it was, you know, I, I don't know if you've spent much time at residencies. For me, they're very, very powerful places in which I can finally kind of let go of some of the the busyness in my brain and 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 go into a deeper level because I don't have to go grocery shopping. I don't mm-hmm. have to, you know, you know. As so, um, in this remarkable setting, I, you know, I did some research and and I sat down to write. And instead of writing, <laughs> instead of writing anything realistic, I these four children, the four surviving children, were in a city park and they were pretending to be spies and they were talking in their, they were talking in their walkie talkies and they were running into a natural history museum and, and, or a museum of some kind and, and drawing pictures of dioramas and they were running onto the subway and back home to their rent stabilized apartment, rent control apartment, excuse me. And they were not on the moors. And this was not something I had decided. This was something that I just wrote. I wrote it and it was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the second day, there was another story. No, um, it, it, it was what manifested from kind of a lot of uh, some of the research I had begun doing, only just begun doing, or maybe some of the, I don't remember anymore what the sequence of events was about the reading of the novels again, whether I had started reading them, rereading them or reading them for the first time yet. But in this environment where I was kind of free to delve into my or allow my subconscious kind of to take over, um, that's what I wrote. And then I moved on from there. And from there, that was a kind of a more of a conventional tale, not even told from the perspective of any of the particular children. It was kind of a not quite a we story, but it was kind of a collective story of theirs. Um, I, I moved on and then maybe the next story, I don't remember what the next one was, but maybe that had a single pers- a point of view and maybe that had a more defined or more uh, form that wasn't, um, you know, a conventional story. Very likely it was the Match.com profile that that Papa writes, you know, at, so out, of chronology, out of chronology when he decides very soon after, this is all true, very, very soon after the death of his wife that he needs to find another wife. And it's partly because he has six children under the age of 10 who need taken care of um and so would not have been probably all that unusual in his time but in our time you know how would a person do that if if uh if he doesn't have time to go you know or or natural you know the natural outlets for he's not going to a bar papa ain't going to a bar <laughs> uh, he's, he's a little bit up uptight so he, he puts out a match.com profile he goes to a dating site and 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 sets out what he wants and um you know it's comic, but it's also kind of sad because in reading that in reading that profile, you immediately understand what kind of a person he is, at least to a certain extent, and you understand that this search of his is going to be 
futile. It's not going to work. He's going, he's not going to find a substitute for his, his wife. So um, possibly that was the next story that I wrote. And, and, and so in doing that, I was like grappling with, well, who's the point of view? Well, in this case, it has to be Papa, but what's, what's, what's the form that can, that can capture this moment. And, and, and I went on from there and every story that I wrote, I just put it to the side once it was kind of drafted in a more or less complete form, not a final form, but a, a you know, a coherent form. And I just went, moved on and on and on. And by the time I left these two residencies, I had, I don't know, 150 pages of, of pieces and stories that 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 began to track their the, the Bronte lives kind of chronologically. Um, uh, so it was not a decision. It wasn't an intent. It was something that happened um, partly as a result of being in this incredible environment, partly as a result of who I am as a writer. And and uh, and I moved on from there. I love this because I, I mm. I'm teaching a class on how to write a novel. Oh, good for you. I know. And ultimately, my my point is you're going to do it. You're probably going to do it differently each time you try. And yes. the novel that you're writing is going to teach you how to write it. And it really yes. sounds like that's what happened for you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The, the process was not one I've ever used before. I mean, the book is not like one I've ever written before. It's my third. And um, the process was completely unique to this to this project. And, I, you know, so in 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 teaching that class, I think it, the students need to learn trust right that's like Mm -hmm. that becomes the the bottom line when you allow yourself to when you allow a book to dictate its needs to you you have to trust yourself you have to trust your creativity or your unconscious or the book itself um to tell you what it needs and Mm -hmm. i think that that's that's the hard thing to hard thing to do sometimes or maybe it's a hard thing to learn um for many of us anyway maybe not everybody well, I think a lot of us turn to like, okay, well, I'm trying to do something similar to X. Yes. So uh-huh. I'm going to go look at that, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm, and then that's going to show me that it's okay because mm-hmm. mine's going to, mine's going to be different in all these ways, but it's okay because someone before me got something published that was also, you know, yes. weird. <laughs> it gave, gives you permission. It gives you permission to, uh, to do this thing that you have, this crazy thing you have in mind. Yeah. And I think like... <laughs> It really is a matter of, and and I think for me personally, it's a matter of just saying, literally, like fuck it, I I have to do it this way, uh-huh. and it's gonna, you know, I just have to because I I there's no other way that I can do it, and and it's exactly like you're saying, it's trust, it's mm-hmm. trusting yourself, it's trusting that you know the work you're making is meaningful, um, yeah. But it's not, you know, there's gonna, I think there's always days where it's like, oh no, you know, like. <laughs> What did oh I no! <laughs> Have I said this a few times? I, and I think in this case, I mean, not everybody who is trusting themselves is going to come up with a book that is as different as the one I, you know, as, as Half Life of a Stolen Sister. Um, so in my case, I also had to trust that, or not trust. I had to kind of let go of the idea that it had to be published almost because there's a chance that this would be so odd and so different that no one would want it. I mean. In the end, someone did, but but th- there was always the case. There's always a chance that by being true to this book, which was not a conventional book, that I might be, you know, I might just have to find all my, all my satisfaction in the drafting of it because right. I might never see the light of day. Which is over a period of ten years, that's a that's a you know that's a big deal. 
that's really scary. That's really scary yeah, because you bit. can you can see an editor or editors saying like, oh, it's really great. I really admire the quality of the writing. I just don't know how I could position it. Or agents for that matter. Yes. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it had to be. And you mentioned in your acknowledgments that it was yeah. a much longer oh, yeah. book. Yes, yes, yes. Was there it were waves and waves and waves of revision as it happens and and you know, you, you know this from your own work, you can revise to a certain extent and then be certain that there's nothing more you can do. Mm-hmm. And then either time or someone's feedback gives you a way back in. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up cutting hundreds of pages and, and some of that was just, you know, tightening language. Some of it was <clears throat> cutting stories that I, you know, I was very attached to and I thought were quite accomplished or pieces and not all stories, strictly speaking, but um, pieces that I was very attached to and thought were quite wonderful but in the end if they were missing from the book would this would the book suffer and and I had to lose a lot of those pieces um yeah revision took many years (laughs) revision took a village (laughs) well I can't even imagine because you're trying to write four lives and then also the other secondary and tertiary lives that you get yes you know aunt is one of them and papa yes um Of course, that would be a behemoth of a book. Yes. yes. <laughs> how can you? It actually hurts me a little bit. I wish I could read those stories because I know that <laughs> I would love them. You know, like it's it's someone it's four lives. I mean, yeah. a life is going to be a very long book. Yeah. Um, yeah, indeed. Indeed. And and yeah, I think it was an expansive quality, as you can tell from just the the the, the quality, the, the nature of the book There's an expansive quality, which I brought to it in the beginning, which was if I have the idea, I'm going to write it. So it was, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of winnowing at the beginning. It was, you know, writing a lot and writing lots of pages and writing lots of pieces was part of that, 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 that initial momentum, that, 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 that great creative flow, which was like, I'm not going to stop this process. I'm just going to write all these pieces and then see what, <laughs> see what happens. Um, so there was, there was an expansive quality and, and, and not everything I wrote turned out to be necessary. Um, and I would cut some pieces and then bring them back and depending on what people said uh, and try, you know, trying to achieve a balance in the end. That was probably the last phase is not just cutting things, but trying to achieve a balance in voices and in tone, really, because mm-hmm. um, there, there are places where, you know, where sad things happen and you have to ba- you have to manage that tone. You can't um, you can't put the reader through story after story after story that is just awful. You have mm-hmm. to find ways to to give the reader some rest or different ways of looking at things so that it's not just they're not overwhelmed. They're not in a in a, they're not drowning, you know. Mm-hmm. So and and there had to be a balance, especially with the four voices of the four surviving siblings. There had to be balance there that that felt okay. So there, that that was a big part of 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 revision in the in the later years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the various phases of revision, which took so long. I I can't even imagine how hard that must have been. You know, cutting, I don't mind cutting as long as I have a vision of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. As long as there's clarity. If there's no clarity, that's hard. Uh, I had an agent when I started the book who at a certain point said, cut one third of this book or I'm not going to go out with it. And But she offered no guidance not not even not even a rationale that wasn't a commercial rationale it wasn't like there's too much of this or too much of that or 
you know, it's just, it, it's too long and I want you to cut it. And, and there was no help. Right? There was no help. Oh, and I tried, but there was, I, there was only so much I could do. And we parted ways. Um, you know, later I had a, a, a reader or two who might make certain, make certain points about the book. And then I could, ah, I could kind of see how this layer or this, 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 this point and that point and that point don't, don't need to be made or this is repetitive. You know what I'm saying? There's there, there were ways when once I could see, once I had some clarity about how it could be sleeker, then it was, it was easy actually mm-hmm. for me to cut. Mm-hmm. It just, it's always, oh, it's just a question of clarity and having a vision. Um, and I don't, I just don't mind it. I really don't. There's some satisfaction even in it, you know, mm-hmm. it's like purging, purging all the, the, the dresses you're never going to wear again, right? They just don't serve you and they can, kind of Marie Kondo your your closet and feel better. <laughs> yeah, now they call it editing your closet. And it's exactly like <laughs> editing really? your Yes, yeah. I'm going to do a closet edit. I mean, like, it's exactly like you're saying. But I think you're hitting on something else that I, you know, try to talk to my students about, which is uh-huh. time has to pass. You know, mm. like, when you get, sometimes you get a piece of information or feedback about what you're mm-hmm. working on, and you mm-hmm. doesn't make sense, or it does it doesn't, you don't, you can't see how it even relates to what you're doing. And then this has happened to me time and again, I'll read a book or I'll talk to someone and and then I'll be like, Oh my God, that's okay. Now it makes sense. It's just like you're saying, Mm -hmm. it's like, now I can see the way ahead. It feels like the way that you're talking about it as you were writing, Mm -hmm. it was, it was like a way that you were being consumed. And then as you were editing, Mm -hmm. it was a way that you were like, reanimating yourself or re or you were consuming mm. it you know like it was mm-hmm. like this push and pull um well it, it was also just a kind of way of controlling kind of this the madness of it all right to, to, to shape it is is and I, I find that the hardest phase of book writing no matter what the topic right it's just no matter how no matter what I'm doing is is finding the right shape for it and and pacing and and uh you know, this is obviously not a book of suspense. We, we all know how it ends, um, or we have that. You know, we have the option of learning how it ends. Um, so it's not a book of suspense, but but nonetheless, shaping is so hard for me. It just it, and it does require the kind of perspective that you're talking about. And and so, in a sense, you know, writing a book over ten years can have some advantages, and that you do kind of periodically get new new perspective. Um, I'm not hugely good about sharing my work in process, but I do find that when I share it with smart people, they can say a few things that help me understand what I'm doing or what the reader's missing. That was, uh, you know, that was important feedback. And then once I could get some clarity about that, I could take more steps, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not always able to come to that clarity by myself, unfortunately. I guess none, right. of, none of us really are, right? That's why editors are so beautiful. It is, it is so important to have something like that. But I am the same mm-hmm. way. I I don't like showing my stuff until I'm mm. until I'm at the end, basically. Um, yeah. So, and then, so, you know, and usually what I do is I send it right to my agent. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that can blow up in your face, right? Like, <laughs> you can go, what? Yeah, if your agent reads it, that would be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the my favorite parts of reading this book was that for me as a writer and mm. a reader, a big reader, the Brontes are such giants in the literary world. Yeah. 
yeah. that, that I took for granted that they were just meant to be writers. It was their destiny. Mm. It just came from them. So it flowed from them. Yes. Yes. Easy for them, you yes. know, it, and um, it really truly wasn't. And they failed no. again and again and again. Yes. Yes. And, um, and, I, and, and even, sorry to interrupt you, but even no. more than that, there's a very strong chance that if, if Charlotte had not been this driven person, they would never have written their novels or they would never have published them. They might've written them for themselves, but never published them. Emily mm -hmm. didn't want to write a novel. She certainly didn't want to be published. She wanted to publish anything. Mm -hmm. You know, she just, she, she, she was all about kind of creating for herself or maybe, you know, maybe for the members of her family, possibly her sisters, but she was not at all about publication. There's another possibility. And that is that, that if, you know, if any number of things, if, 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 if Charlotte had been conventionally pretty and had more social graces, um, she might never have turned to writing. If, if her father hadn't, you know, if their home family home hadn't been kind of entailed to the father's job, leaving, you know, with the prospect that they would be homeless once he died and they would be, you know, in poverty, basically, um, they might never have written their books. There's so many contingencies. Um, and it's, a lot of this is gendered, of course, but there were so many contingencies that, that, that their books may never have been written. And that just also struck me very strongly when I was reading, reading their, reading their biographies and letters and so on. And I'm, I'm glad that that came through because um, there's nothing foretold about it at all. Their mm -mm. genius might've been un, unfulfilled and, or unnoticed. Uh, and, and it wasn't, thank God, you know, thank, thank God. Yeah. And I, I think also of how Anne assumed the world would receive her book mm. and um, you know, the way that it was actually received, the way that people mm. actually responded to it, at least how you wrote it in this novel mm. was um, shocking to her. Yeah. Yeah. And well, all silencing. Three them, all, all three. I mean, Charlotte's books, Charlotte, well, Jane Eyre was very popular, but it was also received with a lot of judgment, a lot of bad judgment. All three of them were viewed, the, not them, but by extension them, but their books were viewed as coarse and, uh, disgusting in some ways and just you know beyond what polite society could ever hope to assimilate all three of them got very bad reviews first of all their poetry was completely ignored but the the novels were received with a lot of a lot of vitriol and um that's also hard for us to understand you know that 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 they would be viewed as kind of monstrous authors even before they were recognized as being female because of mm -hmm. course they, they wrote under under um pseudonyms that could probably be understood to be masculine although you know they were, that was also a little bit unclear but um their books were not well received with the exception of of Jane Eyre which was a huge popular success but still again received a lot of critical nastiness you know um and, and it's it, it, it's not how we not what we would assume you know no. given how we've romanticized them as figures now they're classics Yes, right? they're like classics. Yes. What we would aspire to. Yes. Um, yes. They are they, our forebears, right? Yes. As authors yes. and as, yes. Is indeed. it true Emily had the workings toward another book, but the, it was destroyed? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's the best that, that's, that's the best information that we have. And it's not clear what happened to it. Some people think that Emily, that, that, that Charlotte destroyed it. I just kind of, 
can't believe that, although she was extremely protective of her sister's reputations after they died. And she did kind of try to present them as kind of these naive country girls, you know, who who could never have written these these coarse, uh, well, in Emily's case, brutal. Actually, in both cases, they both had brutal male characters, mm -hmm. um, which were shocking. Um, and wrote about an alcoholic husband, right? Who was uh, had to be, had to be, you know, the, the the wife had to leave him because he was so brutal. And of course, you know, we don't tend to think of those of us who only ever saw Wuthering Heights from from the movie and never read the book don't really understand how brutal. Uh, Heathcliff is. He's very, very brutal. Um, so, you know, who could have written these books? Well, Charlotte really wanted these her sisters to be remembered kindly as kind of gentle, almost simple souls because she was hurt on their behalf by how their books were received. And so she kind of began the whole process of of romanticizing them as these kind of people simple. who heard stories on the moors and just related them right <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> oh you can see the good intentions there but also yes <laughs> oh my heavens oh my heavens so there's a there is a some believe that she destroyed her sister's book in progress and we don't know if it was you know one chapter or almost done we just don't know much about it and i don't i don't think she did but what what do i know i don't know anything <laughs> I wish, I, I wish we could somehow find you, the pages. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Because well, and that just, yeah, go ahead. It, it was more, it was more, right? Like it was like what yeah. Wuthering Heights was, it was pushing it past that, right? You assume so. You assume so. Because she would not have been satisfied, you know, staying where she was. And right. and where she was, was, you know, that was such a, oh, it, it, it was such a book, right? It was mm -hmm. such a book of passion and, and, brutality and and such a vision in the world i don't know uh and then you know this it's a it's a brief step to imagine what they might have achieved or written had they lived beyond the age of 30 right oh my gosh i can't right? I even you believe can't. you I, can't it's too hard to hold in my head it is too um, hard to hold. i stared and stared at this cover and it's it's at the top of every oh. chapter and yes again, I refuse to let myself look up anything. And I finally yes. let myself look into this painting, which is of yes. the three sisters. And then there's yes. like this ghost like yes. room going up much. Yeah, <laughs> between two of the sisters. Yeah. And um, turns out that it's Branwell. It's a painting. Yes. Of, it's the painting that they talk about all throughout the book of the sisters. Mm -hmm. And he painted himself out of it. Yes. Yes. So he painted. It's I think I don't know if it's the only painting that survives that he made but it's certainly very very famous and he initially had himself painted between and there's a big gap you can see if you're looking at the painting there's a big gap between the the figure who's understood to be uh emily and the figure on the right side understood to be uh charlotte and with time i think you know initially he effaced himself and it was just empty space but with time i don't know enough about pigments and the science of painting but that that figure which was him is kind of emerged from the background is kind of this weird ghostly shape um which you know if, if i'm looking at it right now if that had been him he would have quite dominated the painting wouldn't he with his <laughs> big head and and right in the kind of the, the viewer's center his head is above those of his sisters and it, it would have been really about a painting of him with these little minions around him right yep. the heads of his sisters around them and instead it it became a painting of his sisters and it's 
you know, it's, I guess it's quite well known among those who, who know the Brontes. And I had the, 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 ex, the thrill of seeing it once when it came to New York um, oh with a, 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 yeah, it was amazing. Wow. Together with one of Charlotte's very, very tiny dresses. Oh my gosh. Yes. She <laughs> was a very a tiny, tiny person, person right? Probably tiny. You could really sense that when you saw how tiny her little dress was. And Emily yeah. always felt huge, right? Like she was yeah. always the tall one, the gangly one. She was one. the tall one and ungainly. I'm glad that came through. Yeah. Especially in comparison with her two sisters. Yeah. Her two little itty bitty sisters. Do, do, yeah. Does anyone know why he painted himself out? Was he unhappy with it or was he just... I, I don't think I don't think we know. If we do know, then I've I've forgotten. And wow. and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And, and you know, maybe it's better not to know because mm-hmm. it allows us to to tell a story about to his imagine. Mm-hmm. sense of exclusion or his sense that his sisters eclipsed him or that he had no place. He had no place in the in the family life that became their creative world that it, you know eventually he was not a part of. Or maybe he you know maybe he effaced himself because he felt such shame at how he had allowed his own life to become such a wreck you know Mm -hmm. it's just we can imagine anything we want really I have um an older sister and a younger brother so it was Mm -hmm. my little brother and two sisters Mm -hmm. and my parents always talk about how ruthless we were Mm -hmm. with him and I don't remember it that way I remember friendship closeness but Uh reading some of the things that you wrote these scenes where he's trying to get a word in edgewise <laughs> and they're all just like talking over him, talking past him, cutting him off. I can kind of see <laughs> where where my parents were coming from with, from with that because it's uh, you know it's a matter of numbers, right? Like there are three girls and one boy, and yeah. like an absent father who's out yeah you know, working in the world. Um, and it's well, in, in, in the beginning, it really was it was Charlotte and Branwell. They were the creative pair, and Emily and Anne wrote their stories together but when charlotte disappears to go off to school for 18 months i think you're probably thinking of the story dead dresses which is where <laughs> branwell's trying so hard to get the attention of his two younger sisters yes and they're just yes, ignoring yes, yes. him especially and in, 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 in emily is sort of the the, the the leader of that and there is there you get some sense of the pleasure they get in having this control over him being he's not younger than them but he does he sort of has the affect in the story of being the younger brother who wants attention and they will not give it to him, but he does take up a huge amount of space otherwise in the book and in their mm-hmm. lives because mm-hmm. he is the boy. He is has, the only have, boy. He's the only boy. He's given favored treatment by the father. All their hopes are pinned on him. And whether it was that, that expectation, which was too large for him possibly, or whether it was just his own personality, his character, he couldn't live up to that expectation. And so his, bad behavior then takes up a lot of the space in the family life. So he's not exactly effaced, but he is left out of the creative endeavors after a while, because who wants to tell stories with a drunkard, right? Mm -hmm. Who wants to tell stories with a brother who's puking, you know, when he gets Mm -hmm. home from being at the bar, Mm -hmm. Um, even as there, no, as there are adults and transitioning to maybe telling other kinds of stories, he is excluded. And, you know, probably it's his own fault, but, Maybe, maybe there's some sibling, you know, sibling retribution there. Who knows? Who knows? Siblings are complicated. So complicated. So (laughs) complicated. Yes, I could. That's part of my, you know, intense admiration for this book is because you you really get at that. Um, The love is so real. The love and um, cherishing is so there. But there's also this frustration and anger and rage. Yeah. And yeah. 
you know, um, and it's hard to push past any of that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's clear thinking. I mean, Anne can re- she's probably the most clear thinking of the sibs that I, as, as I understand her, she really sees who her sisters and brother are. Mm-hmm. She can, she can present them to us in a way that we, that they can't see themselves possibly. I mean, Emily's a bit of an exception possibly, but, but she really sees Charlotte, I think for who she is and, and her brother as well. Uh, maybe with too critical an eye, but she she can give us a different point of view. And that's something that is true of our siblings, isn't it? They see parts of us that that we don't present to the world, that we wouldn't even know how to present to the world. They they see us in a more complete way than many, many people, I think. Oh, it's painful. I mean, when I'm around my <laughs> sister <laughs> and I say anything, I hear it immediately from how she's hearing it. And I just want to uh-huh. die because... <laughs> She, I just know what's coming, you know, like she, it's still like that, you know, and it, but I also love it, you know, like I love being seen that way, but I also hate it, you know, and it's just, oh, that's so interesting. That does sound like a younger sister and I'm the oldest of, of everybody. So that, that's not my perspective, but that's very interesting. Yeah. You're able to kind of see it in a, in a different way, but, and I see Possibly. my brother that way. Uh-huh. Um, he, he's six, five. So he sees us, Oh my goodness, you know, yes. he sees us <laughs> from above, but uh-huh. <laughs> Um, I want to hear a little bit about what it was like to go on submission for this. Oh, um, well, at the time that I sub- the fight when I found a home for it, I found it on my own. Did you? For me, the process. Yeah, I did. So I did. tell us how. Well, well, you know, as I said, I my my former agent who my former agent and I divided when again she she wanted me to cut a third of the book and I didn't feel like I had sufficient rationale or guidance to do that and couldn't do it. Um, and she had taken me on based on, you know, 80, the 80 or 90 pages of the book that I had published in various places, the various stories I'd published. I shared them with her. She took me on. This is after my first book was published to some, whatever, some moderate acclaim and, and before the second book came out. And uh, so she took me on and then we divided and, and I tried, I don't know, maybe, 30 agents or so oh my trying to find somebody oh my oh yeah yeah right this is this is my karma you know (laughs) what it's worth um and in the end um i placed the book at soho press myself uh just by contacting them and sending it to them well no it it, it, one of one of the staff people there was a friend and she's also a writer and so we exchanged books um, she wasn't the editor I ended up with, but she's, you know, she's affiliated with them. And um, I read her book and gave her feedback, her wonderful book and gave her feedback. And she was prepared to give me feedback, but she said, really, I think Soho should publish this book. And I was oh like, my gosh. Okay. That sounds good to me. I, you know, wasn't sure if it was still, you know, still needed more work or whatever. She thought it was very close to finished. And, and uh, so she kind of brokered, well, she, she introduced, she passed the book along and there was no you know, the, the editor who's Mark Doden still had absolute freedom to say yes or no. She wasn't in a position to say you will publish this. And, uh, uh, but he, so he made his decision. And then based on his offer, I then returned to one of the agents who had been lovely to me. And, uh, she took it on because of the offer I'd received. So, um, she is the agent of record, but I, I placed the book myself. So then when the agent comes in, did, did she yeah. help you negotiate a better deal? Did she help you? Uh, <clears throat> well, the, she, 
she yeah well that was basically her job at that point was to 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 negotiate and what she was able to do primarily was to retain our rights right okay. mm-hmm. so in my with my pre- previous two books um i also sold those by myself with no agent and didn't get an agent then at that point i was so excited to have the books published <laughs> kind of maybe foolishly so that i allowed them to keep all the rights mm-hmm. and they ended up not selling any of the rights i mean zero nothing not not audio nothing and so it was really important to me this time around to have to sell rights to, to retain the rights as a kind of a gesture of i don't know the future progress right yeah and so she was able to do she was able to retain our rights and that was you know marvelous thing for me and um so and something for which i'm you know grateful to this day uh um, and that that has been her primary role. Okay. Because again, she didn't have to. She didn't edit the book. She didn't, you know, give feedback on the book itself. She entered the, you know, entered the fray um, at that stage, um, and and helped in in really concrete ways. Did um, audio rights and foreign rights sell yet? Uh, I have an there's an audio version um, which I'm afraid to listen to, and so I, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure it's very 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 good, and I'm afraid to listen to it. And um, the other rights, not so much yet. Yeah, and I think it's it's yeah. I mean, one always one always hopes. I think there there was not as much in the way of reviews for this book as there was for my first two books, and there can be all kinds of ways of understanding why that might be. Um, in the end, um, Soho has. So we gave back the, the the Commonwealth, the you know the UK rights to them, mm-hmm. so that we mm-hmm. could be sure it was sold in the English speaking world, and I could, you know, attend the the, the Toronto festival, which I'm going to next week. Yes, um, this week, me. yes, I know. And then there would actually be books there, and so on. So, so Soho kept those rights, and um, yeah, so not as much movement as as there could be, but there, but it's a possibility. As uh, in the other two books, I guess there just wasn't any possibility whatsoever, given the lack of effort, I what I assume to have been a lack of effort on the part of the publisher. In this case, at least I have people who are working for me who want to see that happen. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, if, if there's, you know, especially with foreign translation rights, if you're not getting the, the these big reviews and these big newspapers, and then there's less to show them to get them excited about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I, I remain hopeful, but it's not been it's not been a major part of my publication experience. This book is so fucking good. And Thank I, you. I'm Thank you. shocked to hear that mm. there's not people freaking out all over the place because Thank you for saying that. It's exhilarating. All the, that I've, all the reviews I've had have been very positive. They just have been not from like the major, whatever, the major outlets. That's all I can say. You know, the, 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 yeah, that's all I can say. Yeah, I hear um, you. And, and a lot of the reviews, they just got stuff wrong. I think they were expecting fan fiction or they were expecting historical fiction they were not expecting what they got and 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 a lot of the a lot of the, the response was kind of like huh wait what huh <laughs> you know what that huh. to me means this book is going to have a long life I because you're right I, be I, something. I think the books that come out and they're just like pow 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 uh-huh. people don't talk about them after oh you know two weeks or a month you know, like with rare exceptions, but like the books where people are like, I really have, I don't even know how to 
categorize uh-huh. this. I don't even uh-huh. know how to talk about this. Yeah. It doesn't fit into the groove of what I'm used to saying. Those yeah. books to me have staying life, staying power. And I, I don't know. I, I thought when I was reading this, I thought a lot about Jack Jem's book, Empty Theater, mm-hmm. which is also, you know, quote unquote, historical fiction, but also mm-hmm. very, you know, innovative and, mm-hmm. you know, like you're in the room with these mm-hmm. historical figures, the way that you are with the Brontes. And yeah. um. I don't know. I was impressed as hell, you know, like I, I absolutely ate it up and Thank I think, you. you know, anyone who reads it will do the same. Thank it's you. just, it's incredible. I mean, all, again, all the, all the, all the reviews, and I, I say this without exception were positive, which is, you know, not always the case, right? That certainly wasn't the case, you know, all with all the reviews in the past. I just, you know, just think there was the gatekeepers just, yep. They, Gatekeeper, and I'm talking also the, the best of list. All these we're anticipating this book. I think they just they made assumptions. That's all I can say. It's the best I can. It's the best I can. I can surmise they made assumptions and maybe dismissed the book. Thought it was you know just too female or too. It was going to be you know romanticizing these characters that well maybe mostly men don't care about. And I I don't know. I don't know. I just can't. I can't. I don't understand. I think it's an amazing book, and and, and people who have read it. Have, their responses have been incredibly positive and and i think writers in particular are are have been have felt so strongly about the book and where they've liked past books but this book has really moved a lot of people mm-hmm. oh, yeah it'd be nice if if uh if that did lead to some kind of groundswell and and uh you know staying power because yeah. yeah, you're right that would be that would be fantastic right that's that's in the end what's most important there is something to be said about the assumption of quote two female yeah. Um, we have to fight that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the Brontes were we fighting that. that. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like know the, how we do that. Uh, I guess we publish so, as Curran Bell. <laughs> and just like, hope for the some, best. You know, some people review the book and they 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 act like Branwell didn't even exist. I mean, their their assumptions, even on reading the book and reviewing it, is this book about the sisters? And it's not. I mean, really, obviously they're they're major characters, but it's about the whole family. The whole family. And, yep. Yeah, it really is. Um, and obviously those three get a lot of. You know, more attention than the father does but or the aunt for obvious reasons but the brother you know he has a lot of space in the book and it's not just about the sisters but that's the kind of the assumption that people are making without even thinking about it right mm-hmm. and, and uh anyway if I, if I think too hard about what people are thinking about when when they decide that the book is not something they want to whatever it's a I dead end road it's not it's not good for me it's not helpful no 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 i i i am so happy that i um got to read this book and that thank you and that you came on and to talk to me about it i i'm just so honored and um thank you and and I'm... everyone should read it everyone who likes to experience something completely new to you. you know read a book that has its own rules and and yes you know like it's it is one of those and yes i loved it i and i love this conversation and just thank you so much thank for you. coming on oh my heavens thank you so much for having me this was this was beyond a pleasure. This was, uh, well, what is behind beyond a pleasure? It was a, a pleasure times two. Pleasure squared. <laughs> it was an <laughs> exponential pleasure. Square. Square. <laughs> <laughs>